lesson tonight. If I had to do it over again, I, I wondered if I should have uh, had this lesson first and then uh, the lesson we just did last, because in one sense, this feels a little more like a class, and the last one felt a little bit more like a uh, sermon. Uh, I don't know which one you will appreciate more, maybe neither one of them, but we're talking about this hour, is the Bible scientifically accurate? You know, the Bible is allegedly unscientific, yet atheistic evolution, uh, you know, it, it says that everything came from nothing. You know, allegedly that the Bible is not correct in what it says about anything, what it says really about much of anything to do with science, the study of natural things, and yet atheism says, evolutionary atheism, atheistic evolution says that everything came from, you know, there, there are more and more leading atheists who are just saying this. Uh, I've read statements through the years from uh, the late uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, who said that the Big Bang came from nothing, to uh, the more well-known atheist today in America, um, Dan Barker, who is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, in a debate he had with Todd Friel a few years ago, he was asked, do you believe that something came from nothing? He said, yes. Just think about that. They, they refuse to have God in their knowledge, but they will believe that something could come from nothing. They believe that non-life evolved into life, which evolved into totally different kinds of life over millions of years. They believe what you have never seen, and what I've never seen, that is complex functional design in nature not having a designer. What I mean is, everything that you see that has a complex functional element to it has a designer. You know, when you just think about this thing right here, you know, what is this? Well, you say that's a, that's a phone. Well, you know, saying that this is a phone, I, I'm, not, I'm not an engineer, but, you know, that, that just seems like an insult to something like this. Number one, it costs a whole lot more than a phone costs. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, but it does, I don't know, maybe a, a, a thousand times more than a phone can do. You know, I, I have an alarm. This is my alarm for the morning. So I hope that if you don't see me on time in the morning, it's because I forgot to set my alarm or it just didn't work right. It's got a calendar on here. I can, I can FaceTime. What is FaceTime, by the way? I don't know. I can, I can like phone picture. I can phone video, right, what, with, my, with my family, like I did uh, with my wife today. Sometimes she's a little hesitant to pick up the phone when it's a picture thing because she may not be, you know, as prepared as she thinks she ought to be. But I'll just take her anywhere I can get her, y'all, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's got, I can email with this thing. I can, I can listen. I've got this one app that it just listens. It just has soothing you know, kind of, uh, you know, ocean type um, stuff and music that will try to help you relax and go to sleep and that kind of thing. You know, Ronald, I think we talked about that a little bit tonight about some sleep issues. It's, it's pretty, you know, if you found this laying on the beach one day down in Gulf Shores or Orange Beach, Alabama, or maybe just on a mountaintop here in the Appalachian Mountains, no one thinks that that just got there by chance over time and millions of years. Complex functional design demands a designer. If we know that in every other area of life, how can we say that we're living on a planet that is revolving right now or rotating at about a thousand miles an hour and you're not even getting car sick? You listen, my wife gets car sick. I think about half the time I drive in a car and I like to think I'm a fairly good driver, but she still gets car sick. 
and sometimes I, 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 do I just need to remind her, honey, do you realize you're on a planet right now that's going a, a thousand miles an hour rotating as it's flying through, revolving around the sun at, uh, if I remember correctly, a few hundred thousand miles per hour, and it's not running into anything. It's got a precise pattern. Well, how did it get a precise pattern? How are we in just the right place for life to exist? Because there's complex functional design which demands a designer intelligence it came from non-intelligence we ever seen anything like this before this is what non-believers and by that i mean i'm referring specifically to atheistic evolutionists have to say that if we are intelligent beings and at one time there were not intelligent beings then we came from non-intelligent beings where did a being come from anyway much less an, an intelligent being Oh, he said, well, you know, if we can find water on Mars or somewhere else, and that just proves it. That proves what? Have you ever gone fishing in a pond and just thanked the stuff on top of the pond for your intelligence? Is that where, where we go? We think a, a, a dumb rock or, you know, a tree? No, because intelligence demands previous tele intelligence. That's what we see in this world. And so when we think about what's unscientific or, or what is, you know, if the Bible is scientific or not, just remember... That everything we see in nature, a study of the natural realm, tells us that matter demands a maker. You know what the Bible has told us all along? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible has told us and has given us many verses throughout Scripture about God being the creator, the maker of all physical things. The physical realm demands a maker. Well, Eric, how do you know that? Well, just let me ask you this. Have you ever just been sitting in your, your living room and just kind of wished you had a, uh, I don't know, an ice-cold Dr. Pepper and it just magically appeared? Now, I know you might say, well, you know, sometimes my wife brings me one or sometimes, you know, my son or daughter might do this. Or, no, I'm talking about just, you know, you know what I like? I'm, I'm driving, I've been driving a 2001 Toyota Sienna, got 271,000 miles on. I've been driving it for several years now. Now, the one out there that I'm driving, it's about, uh, it's a 2008. So how many years is that? You know, it's, it's our new van. That's what I'm driving. You know, Jana lets me drive it when I go out of town. But if I said, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to drive a brand new Hyundai Sonata, you know, that has like zero miles on it, that has seats that heat that has doesn't have a tape player in it like this old white van has i might actually miss that one day i don't know and and uh you know i i, I want it that's gonna run you know they, they have these little hyundai sonatas they build down there in montgomery that they're like half and y'all i don't know anything about cars okay i just know it's like they're they're half gas and half battery they call them what hybrids and they get 60 miles per gallon i kind of want one I say, I say a son, I don't know what kind of car. It's a Hyundai something or other. And, you know, if I think about that long enough and hard enough and wish for it, maybe ask old Santa Claus for it. Is it going to appear in my living room? Well, is it going to appear from nothing? You see, what we know is that matter demands a maker. Well, some might ask, well, where did God come from? Well, that's a fair answer, and you know what the Bible tells us. Well, before I get to that, let me just say this. It's a fair question to ask. I mean, I understand why people ask it, because we're born, we live, and 
as the natural progression of things happens, unless the Lord comes back first, we're going to die. Or in the case of Elijah and Enoch, they were translated into heaven without dying. But under the normal circumstances, you know, we, we come into existence and then we go out of physical existence, but we're still in existence. We're just in the spirit realm after that. And so I understand that people are thinking, well, what about God? Where'd he come from? But asking where God come, has come from is like asking, when did eternity begin? If, if someone asked you, when, when does or when did eternity begin, what would your answer be? Well, if you go to a dictionary and you look up the word eternity, you see that it doesn't have a beginning. And if someone says, well, when does it end? You say, by definition, it doesn't have an end. Well, you know, our God is revealed as one who is without beginning and without end. So when someone says, well, based on the law of cause and effect and the law of causality, every material effect must have an adequate antecedent or simultaneous cause, so God must have one. No, he doesn't, because this is an under... By, by the way, this is a fundamental understanding of the world, and all the sciences would immediately crumble if they didn't understand the real law of cause and effect, which is based upon what we see in nature. But by definition, God is what? He's supernatural. He's outside of nature. And so it's fine to ask where did God come from, but it really does not... Uh, the individual who may be asking that question perhaps has not thought thoroughly through the fact that God is, as the Bible has always contended, eternal. And I would contend that a physical universe that once was not in, in existence, that now is in existence, and at one time, as most, even atheistic evolutionary scientists, from what I can tell, believe at one time there was nothing physical but there is now, well, why is there something now? Because there is an eternal, omnipotent, omniscient creator who made it happen. And the Bible tells us he's so powerful that he could speak it into existence. Where did everything come from? Hebrews 3, 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Both heaven and earth reveal that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. Indeed, I would contend that Genesis 1-1 makes perfect sense in light of what we see in the physical realm, in light of our study of the physical realm. That indeed, God created the heavens and the earth. That we can look up to the heavens as the psalmist declared. That the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter where you live on this earth. If you are of sound mind and have reached an age of, of maturity, we should be able to look to the heavens. Their line has gone out through all the earth, or some translations say their voice, and their words to the end of the world. There is a sense in which God speaks through His physical creation, in the sense that the physical creation declares His glory. Paul would say it this way, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, anyone who does not believe, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. The Bible is not scientifically inaccurate. Anything the Bible says, if it is from God, 
It's supposed to be accurate. I'm not trying to use circular reasoning there. I'm just saying that although the Bible is a book to tell people how to get to heaven, to tell people how to be saved from their sins through Jesus Christ, who is the theme of the Bible, still, whenever the all-knowing God tells us anything, if He's all-knowing and He's all-truthful, then it should be right, whether He's talking about history, whether He's talking about mathematics, or whether He's talking about science. You know, the Bible tells us exactly what we see in nature. That in nature, life demands a life-giver. And you know who the Bible tells us gave life? It doesn't say that there was non-physical life, that non-supernaturally or not miraculously, spontaneously generated, is the word that people use, into life. By the way, you've never seen that happen. It doesn't happen. You live on a farm. You've not had any cows one day, and you go out to the barn, and, and one day you just have a cow that, that you saw pop into existence from nothing, or at least from non let's say you had Let's say you had a steak on your back, a raw steak. It was dead meat. Is it going to turn into a live cow? You've never seen that happen. No one has ever seen that happen. That does not happen. Well, then how did... See, it begs the question, how did the first life get here? See, I... I'm convinced that what you read right there in the very first chapter of Genesis, though it is in quite plain language, I realize it's been translated into the English for us, it tells us that God is the one who created life. On day three, He created the plants, the living plants and trees and grass. On day five, the living animals that swim in the seas and that fly in the airs. On day six, the living animals that are on the land as well as Adam and Eve. The Bible also tells us that he created life unlike what atheistic evolution says. The Bible says that life is created with the seed in itself. You're going to read that a number of times in Genesis chapter 1. It's interesting. It's like, this is almost, it's not, okay, but I mean, this is like perfect biology here. Genesis chapter 1 verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. We just ate some fried okra down at Helen's tonight. Thank you all for that fine meal, by the way. You know, uh, if you were to plant an okra seed, are you to expect a watermelon? No. I've grown watermelon before, and I've grown okra before. I'm not that great of you know, a gardener, okay, or any kind of farmer whatsoever, but my dad was. He grew up on a farm in southwest Missouri. He lives behind me, so he can help me. But I know that when you plant a seed, it produces what? If it does produce, it's going to be after its own kind. And this is exactly what the Bible has said, whether it's about uh, vegetation or whether it's about animals or whether it's about human beings. Life demands a life giver, and life... Intelligent life demands an intelligent creator. Intelligence has to do with the, the capacity to, to acquire and build upon you know, knowledge and build upon it. The definition that you would look up in a dictionary might be a little bit different than that, but here's what you and I know, is that there's something that you can know the difference between something that has some measure of intelligence and something that doesn't. 
and the something that does, maybe it's my little dog that has a, a small measure of intelligence. He's 13 just nearly now. He can tell you when, you know, he wants something to eat or when he wants to go outside and he can, you know, sit at your feet and he can, uh, you know, beg for food and do a few other little things. He thinks he's smart because when Jana cooks cookies, you know, he's running to the living room looking at me and then he runs back to the stove and he runs and he'll just, he'll do that for, I suppose, hours if I let him because he's begging for a cookie. He has a measure of intelligence, you might say. Where'd that come from? Water? No, not dirt, not dust. It came from an intelligent being who created animals and who created very intelligent human beings. The, the capacity that you have to acquire knowledge and to build upon that knowledge and your areas of expertise is, is just fascinating. One of the things I, I enjoy doing is just learning what other people know about their kind of area of expertise that I know usually nothing about. I think it was Sister Rita tonight telling us about some uh, work that they were doing on their house, right? The work, kind of work that I don't know uh, anything about Sean so you probably could teach me a whole lot about any kind of work that you've been doing on your house well intelligence demands an intelligent creator and the Bible has told us that indeed there is an intelligent creator anything that possesses intelligence in nature must have been caused by something intelligent organisms such as animals and humans possess intelligence therefore animals and humans must have been created by an intelligent being and as we've already briefly noted design demands a designer. And we're not talking about just, oh, I see a cloud in the sky and it looks kind of like a puffy bunny rabbit. That's not complex functional design, but complex functional design in the material realm demands an adequate explanation. And the explanation the Bible gives us is in perfect harmony with what nature tells us. And that is that nature screams out the need for a creator. But some say, Eric, I'm still not buying that this Bible is scientifically accurate. And so for the next few minutes here, I just want to go through. That wasn't my introduction, by the way. That was about half the lesson, all right? So we're, we're, we're not going to be here till midnight tonight for Eutychus. We're not, not going to have plan on having any of those tonight. Uh, but some might say, well, Eric, okay, I see some of the big things you're talking about there. But I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm seeing some real specific problems in the Bible. Okay, so what are you talking about? What kind of specific problems? So let's look at two or three here in the, our remaining time together. Because what we have tried to do at Apologetics Press through the years, and I think what's helpful for Christians to, to help non-Christian friends with, is, okay, you, you set out a more positive case for it might be the existence of God or the accuracy of the Bible. And then you answer questions, hopefully, that people have about very maybe particular things or specific things in Scripture. Like, you know, when was the sun, when was it created? Because the Bible tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. But on day four, we read that God created the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars also. So when did he create the sun again? Well, he, he tells us on day four. But wait a minute, what was that light he created and how could you have regular days? Well, this is how the agnostic, I believe he is, Dr. Bert, Bart Ehrman, uh, who... Kyle, my colleague Kyle debated a few years ago at 
the University of North Alabama. He said in his book, Jesus Interrupted, he said, if light was created on the first day of creation, Genesis 1, how is it that the sun, moon, and the stars were not created until day, the fourth day? Where was the light coming from if not the sun, moon, and stars? And how could there be an evening and morning on each of the first three days if there was no sun? This is a fair question to ask. There's no problem asking this question. Again, you and I can probably see why it's asked. Maybe we've asked that question ourselves. and No problem asking it. And maybe we ought to consider that similar to how God spoke light into existence on day one of creation, saying, let there be light, on the fourth day, God declared, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens, and it was so. I'm not necessarily contending that I know exactly everything that went on on day one or day four, but I am saying that we can know enough to know that there's no contradiction here and not some kind of scientific inaccuracy. Similar to how God initially made the land and seas void of animal life, the heavens were made in the beginning, but the hosts of heaven, which now inhabit them, were created in the firmament of the heavens on day four. And by the way, the Father of lights, James chapter 1, verse 17, could He not create some form of light without first having to create the sun, moon, and stars? Now let me ask you this. Is it dark outside? Well, you know the answer to that. Yes, it's dark outside. Is it light in here? Well, we've got some light in here. Is this because of the sun? I mean, directly right now? Are we seeing light in here because the sun? So let me ask you. You mean that human beings are intelligent enough to be able to create light, in a sense, without the sun, but Almighty God could not create a form of light without the normal light bearer in its place at that time? The Father of lights, who is all-powerful, could certainly do that. Just as God could produce a fruit-bearing tree on day three without a seed, if He so chose to, He could produce light supernaturally on day one without the normal or usual light bearer. If mankind can manufacture light bearers, God certainly would have no difficulty in creating form, a form of some kind of light without the sun. And by the way, if the glory of God can illuminate heaven without a sun, Revelation 21 and 22, rest assured that He could shine light on earth for three days without a sun. Why did He do it that way? I don't know. He did not reveal that to us, but I know God could have done it that way if He said that he did it that way. Well, some, you don't have to get out of Genesis chapter 1, and some are still bothered by these alleged inaccuracies. Some say that, you know, you read it on day 6 of creation, this is actually in Genesis chapter 2, that Adam named the various animals that God made. And some question, how could this be possible? Because they contend that there wasn't enough time for Adam to name all the animals. So what's our response to this? How could he name, as the question sometimes is phrased, every species of animal on earth in a single day? Well, first of all, Adam's task did not include searching for and gathering all of God's creatures. Rather, Genesis 2.19, God brought them to Adam. Kind of how God brought the animals to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, we see where God brought them to Adam to be named. Genesis chapter 2 verse 20 does not say that Adam named all of the animals on the earth. It says that Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to the beast of the field. 
excluded from this naming process were sea creatures and creeping things mentioned earlier in the creation narrative. Thirdly, the beasts that God brought to Adam are qualified by the descriptive phrase of the field from the Hebrew tzadah. The precise limits of the term field, we don't know, but it's possible that it refers to those beasts that were just living in Eden. And if the beasts of the field were limited to those within the boundaries of Eden, then livestock and birds could have been similarly limited. This would, uh, what, have greatly reduced the number of animals involved in the naming process since it is very unlikely that all the created animals like Eden uh, lived in Eden, excuse me. I mean, if so, Eden would have likely been kind of run over with various animals. But this is probably the kicker to me, and that is that contrary to popular belief, Adam did not name millions of species of animals. That's not what the text says. That God created animals according to their what? According to their kinds. And so God didn't make a, necessarily a chihuahua, or as I say it, chihuahua. I say Chihuahua because I want to know how to uh, spell Chihuahua. And Chihuahua does not look like Chihuahua, okay? So anyway, if, if I was the one spelling Chihuahua, it would have been spelled differently. But God probably didn't make a great name. He probably made an animal that was more like a coyote or a wolf in the beginning that over thousands of years, with all the genetic variety within kinds, we have all the genetic variety we have today. I mean, just look around the room today at all the differences we have among us. From our hair color to our, you know, the, the shape of our nose, our face, our head, to the, the pigmentation of our skin, and all sorts of things within the human race. And yet we all came from Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve didn't have to name millions of species of animals. They most likely had to name, you know, the whatever name they called in whatever language they spoke, the bear kind and the cat kind and the dog kind and the turtle kind, etc., etc. You know, Farrell Till and others have contended that the Bible is just full of scientific mistakes. One thing he said the Bible definitely is not is inerrant or free from errors in matters of science. The Bible, he says, is riddled with mistakes. He's also, when he was alive, challenged Christians, and by the way, as I understand it, he was once a member of the body of Christ and then fell away into atheism. He challenged Christians to explain why a divinely inspired and errant book has so many obvious scientific errors in it. And if the Bible is riddled with scientific errors, they should wonder too the truth about the often parody claim that the Bible is inerrant in all details of history, geography, chronology, etc., as well as in matters of faith and practice. He said it just ain't so let me give you one or two other quotes, and then we'll give one last, maybe one last example. Dennis McKenzie, who passed away just a few years ago, if I recall correctly, wrote a whole lot basically claiming that the Bible writers made all sorts of mistakes. And on page 213 of his book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy, or The Bible Having Errors, he said, a major error in which the Bible fails miserably concerns a large number of statements that are patently erroneous from a scientific perspective. On numerous occasions, the Bible makes statements that, are, that have little or nothing to do with scientific accuracy. The Bible's just not scientifically accurate. Well, the Bible's not a science book, and Christians freely admit that. That doesn't mean it has any inaccuracies in it, but the Bible's not a science book. 
It's not a book of biology, of geology, or astronomy. The Bible is a, a book about God and salvation through Jesus Christ. Still, wherever God alluded to anything, does God know more than any scientist who has ever lived? Absolutely. And anything that God has alluded to, whether it is about history, whether it is about math, whether it is about any of the sciences, its statements, if it is truly from God, must be true and reliable. If the Bible is really given by inspiration of God, everything that God has said by way of His inspired penman must be accurate, including all His, all his statements that are deemed scientific. Now, let me pause here and say, that the Bible is full of figures of speech. And so, you know, it, it's kind of like if you're sitting in a history class or in a poetry class, and, and by the way, there is a lot of poetry in the Bible, uh, and, and it's, it's a beautiful poetry, even where you have such uh, uh, amazing books like the book of Job that is full of encouraging things and then just heart-wrenching stories where he loses everything and he's suffering greatly. You have this amazing book that's full of poetry from chapter 3 to chapter 41 and you have poetry in many of the chapters of the books of prophecy. And so there's plenty of figures of speech. You know, can, can someone, can a scientist who, who knows things and can speak in a very technical, with very technical scientific terminology, can that scientist also use figures of speech? Sure, and people understand that. Well, our God has given us an accurate book that is full of figures of speech, you know, like um, similes and, and, and metaphors and sarcasm. You know, the book of Job, you see where Job says that, that wisdom was surely going to die with his friends. He didn't really mean that. You know, he's, he's using, you know, sarcasm there. And uh, we see where, where, where Jesus and others would use intentional hyperbole or exaggeration. If, if I said, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You don't know I can't eat a horse, but I can eat. I can eat some fried chicken and some fried fish and fried okra. And, you know, us Oklahoma boys, we eat a lot of fried food. Southern boys, we just do that, don't we? A little bit. Maybe it's not the best for us. I get it. But listen, just because the Bible writers use figures of speech and just because uh, sometimes they wrote not in just his, with, with, uh, in, in kind of strict prose and, and, and maybe they, they wrote sometimes uh, in, in language that is a little different than what you would find in a science classroom doesn't mean it's not accurate. You know, when the Bible tells us when, when, when God told Abraham that his descendants would be, you know, as countless as the stars above, as I'm summarizing that, or as Jeremiah made that statement, did God literally mean that the stars are countless? No. But do, do I believe, am I convinced that one of the things that he shared with them, that Abraham was going to have a lot of descendants, they would be like the sand of the sea, not literally as many as the grains of sand that are on the earth, but do I think that there might be a scientifically accurate statement that God is using in those two passages about how mankind is never going to be able to count every star in the universe? Do you know just about, I think it was 25 years ago, by the way, a couple of thousand years ago, people were saying, I mean, I'm talking about people who knew the stars. They were saying there were about a thousand stars. 
Some people who studied astronomy were saying that up until a few hundred years ago. You know, a thousand stars, 1,200 stars, 1,400 stars. You know what they were saying about 25 years ago? 25 sextillion stars. You know, the last number I heard was over 300 sextillion. They were only off by 275 sextillion stars. I don't even know what that number is. I just know it's a lot more than a trillion, okay? And God's Word, long before, said they're numberless. In, in other words, you're never going to be able to count the stars. I believe that's one thing we can derive from that statement, and it's accurate. God knows the number, just as He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows how many stars there are. Let me uh, fast forward to one last example here from Leviticus chapter 11, and then, then we'll close out tonight. Again, I told you this second class would be more like a class and maybe less like a sermon. In Leviticus chapter 11, this is an example of an alleged scientific problem that people have tried to point out for a number of years. Leviticus 11 verse, verses 13 through 19. These you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, and so forth. And you know what the last one is in this list? The bat. And the skeptic says, that's silly. The bat is not a bird. Lauren Petrich wrote in 1990 in an article titled Scientific Errors in the Bible that is at skepticfiles.org, the Bible's classification of bats as birds allegedly represents one of the, quote, scientific difficulties in the Bible. Thus, that's why I'm talking about it just for a few minutes here tonight. Ibrahim Khalil wrote in 2007 in an article titled The Bat in Bible and Quran said such categorization is supposedly, quote, an obvious contradiction between the Bible and science. So get that, an obvious contradiction. And Dennis McKenzie said, the bat is of course a mammal, not a bird. And so he said that this was a superb verse to use, to take enlightenment to the biblically benighted. So people like you and me who are supposedly blinded by the Bible and we just, you know, can't see the forest for the trees and we can't see how inaccurate this is, just show them Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 19. The bat is listed among a bunch of unclean birds. How can that be? Very quickly. And not because we couldn't spend more time on it, or I'm afraid to spend more time on it, but there's a logical reason for this. God did not classify animals 3,500 years ago according to our modern classification system. How do we normally classify animals today? I mean, if you're taking a, a zoology class, you're probably going to learn about mammals. Before that, maybe you will have learned, you know, uh, about reptiles or about birds or some of the other classifications of animals, mammals. Is that how God, is that how you read God talking about animals in the Bible? I mean, you can just go to Genesis chapter 1 and see that's not how he made them. He made animals according to their locomotion or according to their habitat. He made those animals that 
fly in the air and that swim in the sea. He made land animals. So when did he make all of the mammals? Well, he made mammals on days five and six. Because some mammals, mammals as we define them, swim in the sea. Some fly in the air. As we define them, bats, some live on the land. In Leviticus chapter 11, he talks about land animals. And then he talks about aquatic creatures, just before the text that we were reading from. And then he talks about flying animals, aerial creatures, and then other terrestrial animals. He's not breaking things down the way that we break them down. So it is very unfair to say, well, God puts a mammal with a list of birds that's scientifically inaccurate. Absolutely not. That, that, is, that is tantamount to me, you know, going to Ronald's library. Ronald, I'm assuming you have some books at your house and, and telling you that uh, you have your books arranged incorrectly. Now, what would y'all think if I came to your house and told any of you that. I don't like, you know, I, you know Kyle uh, is one of my good friends, and, and, and we've worked together at AP for many years, and we were in school together before that, so we've, we know each other pretty well. And, and you know one of the things I think is a little strange about him, I'm just going to tell everybody, is that he categorizes his books, at least he used to, I think he still does, this is how he does it, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. I mean, he'll have a book on marriage next to a book on elders, next to a book on archaeology, next to uh, a book that might be a commentary on a particular book of the Bible. Like, dude, what's, what are you, this is not right. Because we all know that the best way to do it is topically, right? I mean, here are all the books on Christian evidences, and here are all your, your commentaries over here. Here are all my Bibles right here on this shelf. I know where they are. Well, you know what? Kyle can do it his way, and I'm thankful I, I can do it my way. But it, it's inappropriate for me to come to your closet and say, man, the way that you have uh, all of your clothes arranged, that's just, uh, that's not right. What would you think of someone who came into your house and your closet and said, the way you have your clothes arranged is incorrect? <laughs> you would think, this is the weirdest person I think I've ever met. I don't know how that's not any different than saying, well, I know that this is how God said, you know, he created things and he kind of categorized things, but, but because he didn't do it the way, the way we do it thousands of years later, he's wrong. See, when you think of it from that perspective, you realize it's really not fair for us to treat God and his word that way. To accuse the Bible writers of categorizing animals incorrectly based on Linnaeus' taxonomy is, is tantamount to saying well, your wardrobe is wrong or cataloging your books is incorrect. Whether a person chooses to organize his books alphabetically, sequentially, or topically according to the Dewey Decimal System or the Library of Congress classification system, it's a matter of judgment. By the way, why is the term bird used? Well, the term bird there in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13, and Genesis 1, 20 through 30, actually is the Hebrew word that, that literally just means flying creatures. So why do most translators translate the, the word bird? I'm, I'm assuming because 99.9% .9 of things, I'm just throwing out a, an estimate there kind of quickly, are, are flying things are birds, and so they put the word bird there. That's a figure of speech. I can't remember exactly what it's called, where a part is put for a hole or a hole for the part, so they just they, they use the word bird. 
that this word is not used solely for birds is evident from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 20 through 23, where that same word is used with the word sharits in referring to winged creeping things or flying insects. No one translates that flying uh, 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 bird insects. They translate it flying insects. And so if you want to be literal about it, that term in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 13 could just easily be rightly translated flying things, and then there's a lot of birds that are listed, and then there is that flying, what we call mammal, listed there at the end. Why are no other mammals listed? Well, bats are the only mammals capable of true flight. Another reason why Bible translators have chosen to use the word birds in these passages most likely. So God didn't classify animals the way that we do today. The Hebrew term can be, and, and, and if you want to get real literal about it, it seems should have just been translated flying creatures. Bats are the only mammals capable of true flight, and bats are listed at the very end. I don't know exactly why, but maybe, maybe Moses, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put it there because, yeah, he knew this flying creature didn't have the kind of feathers that the birds have, but it's an unclean flying creature. By the way, so often what the critics dismiss or don't realize or don't uh, admit to is how, how appropriate it is that some 3,500 years ago all of these animals, like the bat, was put in a list of unclean animals. This is amazing instruction and wisdom. A few years ago, scientists documented that between 1992 and 2002, rabies passed from bats caused 24 of the 26 human deaths from rabies in the United States. Bats are not something you necessarily want to tango with. They're not necessarily something you want to have as pets unless somehow you are extremely careful and uh, you know, you're going to be, you just need to realize these things have a tendency to carry rabies. Moses' instruction to avoid bats coincides perfectly with modern research. Thus, could we not logically conclude that such writing is scientifically accurate? I would contend, brothers and sisters, that the only way we could know that the Bible is from God, if it is, is if what God wrote was always correct. Listen, if I stood up here tonight in front of you and and begin to tell you that I am speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which I'm not, but I'm saying if I did, and then I proceeded in, in this lesson to make all sorts of scientific mistakes and historical mistakes and geographical mistakes and so forth, what would you know about my claim that I was inspired of the Holy Spirit? That it would be what? Absolutely false. You would know that in part because God doesn't make mistakes but mere human beings who are not inspired of the Holy Spirit write and say things that are oftentimes incorrect. But God doesn't make mistakes. And I would contend that what we have is a book that is full of true statements from beginning to end, whatever God addresses, including scientific matters. But most importantly, he's right on when he tells us how to be saved from not a disease, not a cancer, and not COVID-19, but how to be saved from the worst thing that you and I could ever imagine, and that is sin, that if not dealt with, leads people to 
die eternally. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. But God is good. The message is one of hope because Jesus came and took the sting of death away. And if you are here tonight and not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, then you can become one as we've already talked about this very evening. Become a Christian. Put Christ on in baptism and arise dying to the old man, walking a new life, trusting in Jesus and following Him as your Lord and my Lord, as the King of kings, as the one who is the Savior and as the one who is our judge one day in the future, whom we can actually look forward to seeing because of what He did for us and because of our trust in 